0: Welcome to the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the nationally recognized preferred provider for asset protection and tax
1: planning in the nation. This show is for investors and business owners looking to save on taxes and build
0: long-term wealth with Toby Mathis, an attorney, author, business owner, and a featured instructor at Anderson's Tax and Asset Protection event held throughout the country. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to Tax Tuesday, your place uh, where you get some tax knowledge. You get to you get to go over a lot of things today. We have a busy, busy session, and we have a computer that's doing weird things, as they are wont to do. All right, so we should have everybody flowing in. Hey, there. We already see a bunch of folks. Hey, you know what? Just for funs and giggles, somebody has put in Claremont, Florida. Tell me where you're where you're at today. There's Texas heading to Wisconsin. Tell me where you're sitting. What city and state, Ohio, Los Angeles, Hazard, Kentucky, California, Raleigh, Houston at 102. Oh, geez. Now they're flying through Orange County, Parkland, North Carolina, Bonita Springs, Chicago, Mississippi, Stone Mountain, Georgia, Arizona, Minnesota, New Jersey, Tampa, Florida, Auburn, Washington. Congratulations. I know that area pretty well. Arizona. You lived in Seattle for a lot of years, so. St. Charles, Houston, Greenville, New York City, San Francisco—we got everything. Smoky Mountains, Newport, Tennessee, Tacoma, Washington—that's Carter. What's he doing, brother? Get that little little Clint. Uh, anyway, that's pretty funny. All right, so we got to dive on in, Jeff. Anything you want to go over before we dive in? Uh, I don't believe so. It's no fun. So let's go over the rules. Let's see. I like this. Somebody says, hey, any creative ideas to write off the purchase of a camper van? We always have good ideas. All right. We also have Ian, Troy, Elliot, Dana, Pio, Dutch. We got Patty. We got Dana. I think I already said Dana. Well, that is. We got everybody. So we got a bunch of CPAs, tax attorneys, accountants, and support staff. We got a lot of people on to help you guys. If you have any questions, by all means, go in. And if you have questions, go into the the Q&A. I think that's how it's listed is a Q and an and symbol and an A. Go on in there and ask your questions. They'll answer them. We've got a bunch of really good people on to help you. If you have comments, by all means, do like Patty's doing and go into chat and do emojis and really weird gifts. Jeez, P- Patty, that's completely inappropriate. Hopefully nobody else can see it. Just teasing. Um, all right. So ask, ask live questions via the Q- uh, Q&A and Zoom. You can also email in questions during the week there are two weeks in between these tax tuesday to anderson advisors that's where we get our questions you will see that we answer a bunch of questions today we usually get around 10 to 15 depending on how long we want to be here if we want to be here at midnight sometimes jeff grabs more if you need a detailed response like something that's very specific to your fact pattern and involved in, in prep then you got to be a platinum client Platinum's a whopping $35 a month. And you can ask all of the tax questions you want in writing. Now, Here's the reason that we do that, because we want to give you a written response. So there's no question about what we are saying. Plus, people do like to ask us the same question five or six times, because they may have forgotten the answer. Or if it's a technical answer, it's going to go right, right over their head. So we want to keep it there. So there you go i'm referring a tax pay pay, person to your company for maybe a job please do cheryl we are always needing good people and jeff do you need good people i need good people yeah we've actually turned off our accounting for even bringing in people and uh, through october we are we are at capacity we're creating a wait list but that's it we just cannot bring in more a bunch a bunch more tax clients because we got to be able to service everybody so if you know somebody that's good They've done investing, preferably that they you know they have that experience. Otherwise, we will train the heck out of them. So, if you know anybody who's a good accountant or you are a good accountant, reach out. We have forty-five states where we have employees in now, so don't worry. Um, somebody says she's in the won't say this, Cheryl. She's in the state of Washington, and she's us. Awesome. We have an office in Tacoma, by the way. So, if you have somebody good, so yeah, by all means. Anyway, it's this is supposed to be kind of fun. You can see we're a little cheeky. Jeff is usually, I have to hold him down because he gets rambunctious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. But we want to help give back and educate. We want to have a little bit of fun while we're doing that. And we want to take the fear away from taxes. Taxes aren't something to be scared of. The, the tax code is literally like the mountains full of gold. You just have to go dig a little bit. And then you usually find great things. So we're going to strike it rich, maybe, but do, usually we're keeping money in our pocket. And it's one of the more lucrative uh, time spends that you can. Like if you're going to go out there and you have to choose between watching Netflix for an hour or learning about taxes, Netflix will yield you no return. Taxes will yield you a nice return. So I'm not saying don't watch Netflix. I'm just saying watch it after you watch Tax Tuesday. All right. Opening questions. And these are the questions that we're going to go over. So don't worry. We're gonna, I'm just telling you what these are. And then we're going to hit one at a time. So just know that when I read these every now and again, you get somebody panic going, what was the answer? What was the answer? <laughs> There's so it was a good question, by the way, that I just saw pop up in question and answer about pad split properties. As an aside, we know those guys. They're absolutely fantastic. Pad split's great. It's a tech platform. I think we might even be investors in it, but I have a, I have one client who by themselves has over a thousand units and it increased their net Operating income by about uh, 100%, like doubled it. All right. Is it taxable, the money I get from a line of credit or loan? What's the best way to avoid taxes on money borrowed towards investment? So, easy answer on that one, but we're going to go through and and break out some nuances. If 100% of your income comes from royalties, which aren't subject to the 15.3% self employment tax, at what point does it make sense to create an LLC S Corp and have the royalties go to the business and you pay yourself a salary and distributions? really interesting question. And we'll dive into that one. I want to sell my property that belongs to my private foundation and buy as a 1031 exchange. So buy as a 1031 exchange, my own primary residence with this foundation to avoid selling taxes. I think the better way to say that is to avoid any taxes upon sale. Do I have to have a corporation to do this or a private foundation will be okay? This is called stepping in it. And we'll have to go over what all the little rules are when you start talking about private foundations, but we'll definitely get into that. I am a co-owner of a property. I don't get proceeds from rent, but want to invest in the renovations. Are there any tax advantages for me? We're going to have some questions for you. Hopefully some of you guys are on that wrote these. Hey, by the way, somebody says, I'm watching Netflix talk. What is it doing? Did They, they came out and they had a lot of people fall off. I'm just kind of curious. Did Netflix take a hit or did they do really great since... Uh, I think they were reporting their subscribers today. I'm just curious.
0: Oh, no. It, it, it seemed like the market as a whole was up quite a bit. Oh,
1: it went bonkers today. So going up, I assume that they, they, they were down, what, 90%? Yeah, something. Yep. All right. So I missed out on that one. <laughs> if we wanted to stay low, I would have purchased it first. Then it would have stayed low. It's just the rules. All right. I started a vending machine business as a franchise in 2020 through an LLC. Because of my material participation, I wrote off 100% of my vending equipment against my LLC earnings and my other employment W-2 earnings within the last or the, within the first two years. If I can no longer qualify under the IRS rules and become considered passive, what are the implications? Really good question, we'll answer that. There's little pieces on that that we'll break down. What is the best way to set up an LLC for a partnership if you want to be considered as a VOSB? Veteran-owned small business. Somebody says it, it is a gap stock. We'll see tomorrow, up over 10%. They were expecting to lose 2 million, but they only lost 1 million. That's awesome. I always just look at the revenue of these companies and where, like, when they were worth the most, they had like less subscribers, no revenue, and then they actually start making revenue, and then their share price drops like a rock. I'll never really understand that. I only understand cash flow. If you're profitable and you make me money, then I understand it. Everything else, I'm like, eh. All right. How can I write off or expense, finishing expenses on my primary residence that will be purposed late this year as a furnished short-term or mid-term rental property? I hope you know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? I got my feelings. All right. If I move my paid-off condo to a trust, will the trust pay taxes on it? If I sell it one year after owning it, then put it in trust before I sell it, question mark. So we'll go over that. Can you provide specifics around capturing a capital gain loss short term for digital assets? Is it simply sell and repurchase? Is there a certain waiting period before I can repurchase? Great questions. And so we'll get into that. So let's jump in. I think that's all the questions. No, there's one more. One more page. I'm looking to invest in multifamily syndications. There will be quarterly returns, and potentially a lump sum return when the property is sold in five years. Is there a way to transfer, reinvest the profits from the sale into another syndication without being taxed, similar to a 1031 exchange on rental property? Good questions, we'll dive into that. Should I put my college kid on my payroll for 24 to $30,000 a year, rather than just pay their rent out of my pocket? Good questions and we'll get into all the answers. Here we go. You guys ready? Oh, before you do that, Patty already did this. If you like digging into these types of questions, we've been tracking that. I think we're over 400 videos on our YouTube channel. Just go to the YouTube channel. And uh, a lot of videos on there. A lot of them are the Tax Tuesdays where we break out the questions. And quite often you can find good answers to burning questions, or at least give yourself some background so that when you talk to us, or if you're asking questions, that we're getting it narrowed down so you can go right to the to the, the big issue. Speaking of big issues, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. <clears throat> is it taxable, the money I get from a line of credit or loan? Let's just answer that one. Is it ever taxable to get money out of a line of credit or a loan?
0: No, it's not. Proceeds from or payments back on a loan are never taxable. Yeah, you can always borrow against something.
1: The old yeah. adage for rich people was buy, borrow, die. The only question is, Are you in a type of entity where you might have taxable income if it's more than what you put into the entity? As an individual, it's never an issue because you're at risk. It's it's you. You own a home. You can refinance it, take that money out. It's never taxable to you. The only question is whether you can write off the interest. Mm -hmm. Here's a fun one, Jeff. Let's say that I am wanting to buy some, let's say I have a house. If you guys are like me, I I like to have things, I hate having credit. I hate having loans against things really. So I don't have like, so I buy a house. I don't have loans against the house, mm-hmm. but let's say I want to buy a couple properties that I saw that are investment properties. Could I take a loan out against my house and buy those properties? Yes, you could. Can I write off the interest on that home loan?
0: Yes, but you would write it off on the properties you wrote, not as yeah. Principal residence more interest. All right. Now I'm going to
1: speak to those of you who have a loan that's greater than seven hundred and fifty thousand. So I'm going to speak specifically to you guys. Listen to what Jeff just said. You're writing off the interest as a investment expense. Exactly. Not as a personal mortgage. So let's say that I have a house that's worth, you know, a couple million dollars. And your accountant says, Yeah, but you can only write off interest on the first seven hundred fifty. So you're like, ah, oh, crud, but I gotta, you know, I have a HELOC on it. Let's say I have a loan of 750 plus a HELOC for another 300 and you want to buy other properties and you're like, but I can't write off the interest. Yes, you can. What we care about isn't the nature of the security. What we care about is the nature of the loan and a primary mortgage loan on your personal residence is one thing. It actually has to be to purchase or improve that property. Everything else, it can be an investment expense as long as I'm taking it and using it.
0: And you can even use it, let's say you don't do rental properties, you have a business. You can take equity out of your house and lend it to your business, your pizza shop. There you go. Yep. And it could pay you interest. And it could pay you interest. And
1: And it would deduct the interest that it costs. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. What's the best way to avoid taxes on money borrowed towards investment? That's it. I'm going
0: to throw in one other thing, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, The best way to avoid taxes is to repay your loan. You don't repay your loan they cancel your debt on you, that becomes taxable income.
1: That's true, unless it's your primary residence. Unless
0: there are some exceptions for insolvency, bankruptcy. In
1: other words, if I take a loan against something and I don't have to pay it back, they treat it as income to you, especially if it's investment properties.
0: Yeah, we'll sometimes see people, especially like with credit cards, get in trouble that way. Yeah, I don't have to pay it back. How come I have to pay tax on it?
1: Because somebody just gave you 50 grand. Mm
0: -hmm. But it was a
1: credit card. Mm -hmm. They -hmm. gave you 50,000. You bought a bunch of stuff with it. You got to pay tax on that.
0: $50,000 worth of tacos. All right.
1: Now, here's the thing. And this is what I want you guys to really pay attention to right now. Security is different than a loan. So I could get a loan. Jeff could give me a loan and I have zero security for it. In other words, he's (laughs) just hoping that I pay him back. He could give me a loan on any asset I have. I have some art. Maybe he writes a loan against the art. Maybe he writes a loan against my stock. Maybe he writes a loan against some other properties I have. You can borrow against just about any asset. And if you're somebody, for example, who has a large stock portfolio, I was just talking to Jill, who's a really great client I have in Honolulu, really nice lady. And she was talking about a product that they have called a security back line of credit. We've been doing with this for years, so over and over, but it was right around 2%. So some of you guys are gonna be like, wait a second, how come that's 2% but mortgages are so high? Mortgages tend to follow the 10-year treasury rate. Anybody could decide what they wanna loan on. And so if a financial institution, I think she's at Morgan Stanley right now, <coughs> a financial institution says, hey, I will loan you as an investor here and you have a portfolio here, I'll loan you up to 70% of your, the value of your portfolio and they wanna charge you some stupidly low amount, you could do that. They want to charge you 1.5%, they can. 2.5%, they can. 5%, they can. not It's just a commercial transaction. But you can borrow that money, zero tax. Other place you can borrow money that, you, like again, when you're borrowing against there, you actually have the underlying asset. You have the stock and it can still go up. Mm-hmm. Now, it could do the opposite too. So people that borrowed money and you know, did a security backline of credit in December were probably having a little bit of a heart attack. <laughs> like, my, my portfolio, it's down don't worry, historically, 100% of the time it comes back. No reason to think differently this time. But you can borrow against these things and use that money. And actually, so I'm making money on the security, plus I'm making money on on what I'm borrowing. And my debt service is a really small amount. The one that she quoted me was right around 2%. Just think about that for a second. Inflation was 9%. So your cash is getting squished. Here's a situation where you're paying 2% and now you can go out there and deploy additional resources. You still have an investment and you're still borrowing. I like that. I don't really like borrowing against my house and things like that, unless I have some place to put it. I don't mind HELOCs having powder dry, You know the ability to use that money if I need it. But I don't really like that, paying that interest and paying the mortgage interest deduction. Sometimes you don't even get a benefit out of it, depending on your standard deduction. Quite often it's actually better. So I don't really look at that as being a really positive thing. A lot of taxpayers get no benefit out of their home loan. So I tend to not like home loans. That's just me. I do like investment loans because it allows me to lever. All right. Do we belabor that one? Absolutely. Buy, borrow, die. You ready? That's what all the rich do. They buy an asset, it appreciates, they borrow against it, live off of it, pay no tax. When they die, they pay no tax. There's a step up in basis. They can literally sell or their heirs can sell those assets and they never pay any tax. That's why really rich people, you always see them levering their investments rather than selling it. If I sell a piece of real estate, I might lose 8%. You know, I have transaction costs, I have taxes and I lose opportunity and all that stuff. I'd rather just borrow against it and keep that. And then when mm-hmm. I die, that property value gets reset at its the, the fair market value when I pass and my heirs can sell it and pay no tax. Literally, that's the best thing you can do. All right. So I want you to all be rich people. Uh, what do you think is a reasonable percentage to charge over the 2% to lend from a security backline of credit? Oh, if you're, oh, wow. So you're taking that and you're loaning it out again. Commercial loans right now, stuff like that, 7%. So, but anyway, I don't know if I would do that, Tracy, unless it's really, really, really like your business. But if it's somebody that you know, and a really good asset, and it's low value, like I do 50% loan to value on real estate right now, mm-hmm. just because we're in that weird, is it going to go up? Is it going to go down? I think that we're underbuilt. I think that there's not enough inventory, but doesn't mean that the prices aren't going to go down a little bit because the cost of debt just keeps going up, but you know, if I was borrowing that, I'd probably be looking at it making at least five to six percent. And is the home equity line of credit taxable? No. And is the security back line of, tax, uh, of credit taxable? No. Zero. Goose egg.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Goose egg. Wait, that's a heart. <laughs> and I brought you my special cut, too, Jeff.. That's what Patty got me. It's really gross. All right. If 100% of your income comes from royalties, which aren't subject to the 15.3% self-employment tax, at what point does it make sense to create an LLC-S Corp? So it's an LLC tax an S Corp or an S Corp and have royalties go to the business, and pay yourself a salary and distributions. What say you, Jeff?
0: I am not forming anything else for these royalties unless it is substantial in the income especially not an a, a S-corp or a C-corp. If, if they're not subject to the self-employment, there's no reason to put them in an S-corporation. But are they not subject to the self-employment tax? It, it's going to be, depend on what they are. If the royalties, like from oil and gas, they're not going to be subject. If the royalties from writing a book, recording royalties or things of that nature, those are going to be subject to self-employment tax. And that's usually when you see the higher royalties being paid out. I produced the song. It's making me a fortune in South America and so Mm -hmm. forth.
1: Yeah. So the question is always, was it in your business when I created something that creates a royalty? If so, chances are it's a trader business income. Mm -hmm. If it was a one-off, so like let's say Jeff wrote a book on roses. He's an accountant and he writes a book on roses. Chances are that's going to go on Schedule E and not be subject to self-employment tax. Jeff writes an accounting book, it's going to be subject to self-employment tax. So the reason that you would use an S-Corp or an LLC tax as an S-Corp is to avoid the payment of self-employment tax on a portion of that income, especially if Jeff retires. This is how sad it is. Let's say that Jeff writes the most famous tax book ever, and it's making $100,000 a year. Even when Jeff retires, because he created it as part of his trader business, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: he has to pay self-employment tax on it. How many kids do you have? Three. Your kids inherit that because it was a trader business. It maintains trader business income. I believe that they're going to be paying self-employment tax on it. You stick that thing in an S-Corp, only a portion of it will be subject to the self-employment tax now. Old age, disability, and survivors, insurance, and Medicare. Only a portion. So we we avoid a big payment. Now, if you're not subject to tax on your royalty, so maybe it wasn't part of your trader business, it was a one-off, or you bought an investment that has a royalty like Jeff said, then I probably, um, I'm with you. I'm probably not putting that into an active business. I might put it in an LLC yeah. just to isolate it and protect it. So nobody can take it from me. And I might have a business that owns a piece of that. So I can write off some expenses, but uh, you know, that's depending on how many expenses you have, whether you have other income, whether you have other things that it can be managing, but it's facts and circumstances, but just by itself, I'm kind of with you. I'm like, if I have royalty income, probably sticking it in, a, in an LLC. So is it better to generate royalties from inside an S-corp or a C-corp? So Beau, I, I would say that it's always going to be better to have royalty in an S-corp if you're creating it. If it gets stuck in a C-corp, you have two levels of taxation. You have also uh, a, a potential to have too much cash in the business, depending on what it's doing. If you have substantial royalties, if all you're doing is expensing stuff. So let's say that it's Jeff and Jeff has a royalty of $10,000 a year. But Jeff also has uncovered medical dental vision expenses in his family for he and his dependents. And he can't write it off on his Schedule A, but he could have a, re- a health reimbursement plan out of a C-Corp. He may choose to do a C-Corp because that's the only entity that allow you to do that or an LLC taxed as a C-Corp. Then you might do that saying, hey, this little bit, I'm never going to pay tax on it ever again. I have so many expenses I can write off and I want and I want a tax benefit. But again, facts and circumstances. Mm -hmm. This is why you sit down with somebody like a Jeff or somebody who knows what they're talking about so that they can look at your scenario and say, oh, do you think about this?
0: Uh, One caution I would give for like putting in a C corporation, and and it's not necessarily because it's a C corporation, is losing control of that royalty source income. We've seen a lot of the, the entertainers and all who have lost the rights to what they can do with their their music, if their, they sell their materials. It, if they so, it or, correct. Of course, if you're the sole owner of your C corporation, that's that not going cares? to make any difference.
1: But if you have some weird person that's in your partner, like in the corporation with you and somehow they have control, then yes. Is it possible for the IRS to pay you back any money if your S Corp did make a profit? Huh? I don't know what that means. One of our guys will take that. <laughs> I have no idea. It distracts. I see these questions popping through and I want to answer them all because I'm like that. All right. Enough of that. I want to sell my property that belongs to my private foundation and buy as 1031 exchange, my own primary residence with this foundation. Holy kashmoli To avoid selling taxes. Do I have to have a corporation to do this or a private foundation? I like the way they answer. Like they're giving you two Two, two options, both are wrong.
0: <laughs> um, so l- l- let me make sure I got the fact. Pattern yeah. Now. They have a property in their private private foundation, say a rental property.
1: They, okay, let's, yeah. So it's in a charity. Private foundation is a charity. It's a subject. It's just classified as a private foundation.
0: And they want to do a 1031 exchange with that property Which and you, end up with a principal residence for themselves.
1: No, they want to exchange my own primary residence. So they want to buy the individual They want to buy their primary residence. I live in a house and I want to sell it to my foundation. I think that's what it says. I want to sell my property. I want to sell my property that belongs to my private foundation and buy as a 1031 exchange, my own primary residence with the foundation. I
0: kind of feel like they're wanting to buy their own primary residence.
1: Well, let's make it really easy because if you have a private foundation, you cannot transact business with your private foundation at all. Zero. zilch. You cannot sell a my house is worth a million bucks i'll sell it to my private foundation for a dollar you cannot it's an absolute prohibition against doing business with a private foundation public charity you can do business as long as it's arms length but depending on what you're doing is this person out here by the way if you're if you are could you put something in chat maybe you just let us know is it your is it your home that you could cuz you don't do a 1031 exchange in a charity cuz it's already tax exempt right a 1031 exchange is a tax deferral and if there is no tax, then there's nothing to defer, right?
0: Yeah. One thing you have to keep in mind, uh, I went through this with another mother story, with my mother, with her trust, same thing with the private foundation. Once you put that property in that charitable organization or trust, you don't own it anymore. It's not your yep. property.
1: And I think uh, John's just saying, I think they want to swap their primary with a home in a, in a foundation, their primary home in a foundation. So they want to. Swap their primary with a, I don't know what that means. This is just ambiguous. I want to sell my property that belongs to my private foundation. So there's a property in there and they want to buy with that property, your own primary residence. So they want to sell this one to buy their primary residence. And I would say, you're never going to do a 1031 in a private foundation and you can't engage in transactions with your own private foundation. So we don't have to worry about it. You cannot do that. Period. Done. Done zilch. If you want to sell the property that's in the foundation and sell your primary residence to a third party, and then buy that same property from that third party, you could potentially do that, although the IRS may say step transaction really examine it closely. But if you want to get your personal home into that foundation, you're going to have a little bit of tough because you're a disqualified party. Now, what you can do is make sure that you're, you qualify as a public charity if you work with us, you know that we are very bullish on public charities and qualify as a public charity. So you'd have to qualify and seek change on your private foundation to become a public charity, or you might already be a public charity. You don't even realize it because you didn't. You keep calling it a private foundation, but maybe it is doing something. Mm-hmm. Private foundation is the easiest way to look at it as a private foundation. And I'm not talking about a private operating foundation. There's even that, but a private foundation basically is doing nothing. It's just supporting charities. And a charity that does something is typically a public charity. Yeah. So if you have something that's doing veteran homes or low-income housing or runs a amateur soccer league or you know does um, services for the poor or whatever it is, fill in the blank, it's probably a public charity, in which case you could sell a property out of it and use it to buy your home for the charity, as long as it's fair market value, which means you would just get an appraisal. You'd also do a conflict waiver with your board, and, and I'd say you'd want to have a third party look at it and make an opine that it's a an arm's length transaction.
0: Uh, one other thing about 1031 exchanges and primary res- residences, I'm not saying you can't do them, but you can't go directly from primary residence into a 1031, nor can you receive a primary residence out of a 1031.
1: A hundred percent. What does it have to be?
0: It has to be an investment property in between.
1: Yep. And so you can take your personal property, by the way, your primary resident, convert it to an investment property and 1031 exchange it. And in addition, you could still get the capital gain exclusion for having a primary residence that you lived in and owned for two of the last five years. So technically you can do both. So if you live in a highly appreciated house and you're far in excess of your capital gain exclusion, if you're single, maybe you have Mm $750,000 a gain, you only have a $250,000 exclusion. You can knock out that extra 500,000 if you make it into an investment property and then sell it. Yeah. That's actually a really good idea. Look, if any of that stuff, you go, oh my God, what do you just say? We've done specific videos on that exact issue in our YouTube channel. You can go in there and just start looking at personal residence. You're going to see a bunch of videos on the taxation, 121 exclusion, how to partner up at 121 with the 1031 exchange. It's actually the IRS's rule. Like you can go read about it from the IRS and they're pretty good. Uh, somebody says, I am a co-owner of a property. Don't get proceeds from rent. And I want to invest in the renovations. Are there any tax advantages for me?
0: I wasn't sure where this was going when he said it's co-owner of a property but doesn't receive rent. So maybe this property is not placed in service or- um... but It says
1: proceeds. I don't get proceeds from rent. So, I'm wondering whether somebody else is running it, maybe.
0: Mm.
1: And hey, or we don't make anything. It breaks even. We want to renovate it. Do I get any tax advantages for renovations?
0: Uh, Tax advantages, if it's repairs, yes, uh, it lowers your income. But uh, if this is not a rental property, if you're not receiving rents,
1: maybe they're, but I'm, I'm thinking like maybe it's a break even. Hey, I have it, but we don't make any money. So, I don't get any money, or we're leaving it in there because we're going to renovate the property. Do I get any renovations? And I want to put more money into it. Do uh, I get a tax advantage?
0: You're at least going to get the advantage of increasing your cost basis by those renovations.
1: Yeah. And what Jeff means by that is once the cost basis goes up, your depreciation goes up. Yep. If it's a repair, like I'm, reno- when I'm renovating and I'm actually fixing stuff, it's an immediate expense. You don't have to spread it out over 27 and a half years or over 39 years. And if you don't want to wait 39 years or 27 and a half, depending on whether it's residential and non-residential property, if I just want the deduction right now, I could do a cost segregation on the property. And depending on the type of renovations I'm doing, there's a very good chance that you could write it all off in year one like that. Just lickety split, I'd be able to get it. So it all is, again, facts and circumstances. Your facts matter. And knowing this stuff ahead of time may... change the trajectory of this. Like a lot of people do renovation and they talk to their accountant and they say we're going to write it off over 27 and a half years. And then you talk to a guy like Jeff who actually d- digs in this area and he's going to say well if if you're renovating something and retiring like let's say I redo the roof, well I'm retiring the old roof, I get an, I get a deduction for that. Mm-hmm. And then I put a new roof on. All right, now we're going to spread that out over many many years. We're not going to get an accelerated depreciation on that. But you get this big deduction for whatever portion of the old roof you didn't appreciate you got to know that it has a huge impact on your taxes And yes if you're a co-owner that could be an advantage to you depending on what type of organization it is whether you're at risk if it's a partnership you're going to be at risk if it's something else like an llc or something or depending on how you own it if it's a ira or retirement plan or something then it, c- it could change things but for the most part if you're just it's just you and you're a tick a tenant in common or you own an mm-hmm. llc with somebody it's a partnership Yes, there's tons of tax benefits that could benefit you. It does sometimes depend on the operating agreement. You want to make sure that the uh, losses, because that's what it would be, it would be a deduction that would come through as a loss, are pro rata to how much you guys invest, and it's not going to any particular individual. But yeah, again, you take a look at these things. They're not rocket science. You can f- tell pretty quick what you know what your benefits going to be. Talk to guys like Jeff. All right. Vending machines. Everything's in a vending machine now. They have cupcakes. They have, like, it looks like a pharmacy half the time in these things.
0: They have cars and vending machines.
1: I saw that with Carvana. I started a vending machine business as a franchisee in 2020 through an LLC because of my material participation. It's a magic word, by the way. We'll cover that. I wrote off 100% of my vending equipment against my LLC earnings and my other employment W-2 earnings within the first two years. If I can no longer qualify under IRS rules and become considered passive, what are the implications?
0: The primary implication is if you become passive, if you're considered being passive and you have a loss, you're not gonna be able to deduct that loss unless you have passive income. Passive losses
1: only offset passive income. Correct. Two exceptions, if you're a real estate professional Mm-hmm. or you're an active participant in real estate, you make less than $100,000. Otherwise, yeah. So J- Jeff's pointing out that if you have, a, make this into a passive business, you, in other words, I am a silent owner because I am not materially participating. There are seven tests for material participation. If you do not meet those, one of those seven tests, you are passive, right? Mm-hmm. If you are passive, it just means that those losses flow through as passive loss and can be used against your other passive income. doesn't mean that you lose the deduction. It means you're going to be carrying it forward. The big question, Jeff, is does it affect the deduction they've already taken? So let's say that they bought a vending machine for $100,000 or multiple vending machines for Mm $100,000, and they wrote it off in 2020. And now in 2022, they are no longer materially participating.
0: Does it have any impact on it, those losses? It has zero impact on that. Uh, if you went out and bought another $100,000 worth of vending machines in 2022, but you didn't materially participate, you would still get that bonus depreciation, mm-hmm. which may create a loss on your your business. So because you're passive, you may have to carry that loss forward until you mm-hmm. can use it. But it doesn't really change anything that happened in the past.
1: Absolutely and the only thing that you could do to to cause the 100% deduction that you took on the vending equipment the only thing you could do to make it taxable to you is to no longer use it in the business mm-hmm. if that vending machine has a useful life more than likely it's 5 years i'm not sure of vending machines but i'm assuming I'm they're not probably, sure either. They're like 5 or 7 but if yep. if if you take it out of service before its useful life then you have recapture of the deduction that you took that you accelerated so equipment usually, well, yeah, you, uh, equipment you're you're taking generally under Section one seventy nine, or you're taking under Section one sixty eight k as bonus depreciation. Depending on which one you took, twenty twenty probably bonus depreciation. I'm going to assume because have yeah, yeah. hundred percent bonus depreciation. Would they have an issue with recapture under?
0: I don't bonus? think they would if they took it out of service if it was broke or if they sold it. Now if they sold it, they ordinary would have income. proceeds. Yeah. ordinary income. Uh, yep.
1: Yeah, you sell it. I wrote off hundred, but then I sold it for twenty, then you're gonna have twenty thousand dollars of ordinary income. But you throw it out because it had no value, then you just retired it, then you don't have to
0: worry about it. But now you mentioned section one hundred seventy nine and one sixty-eight K for bonus. Mm-hmm. Next year in twenty twenty-three, section one hundred seventy-nine is gonna come back into play because bonus depreciation is gonna drop from a hundred percent down to eighty percent.
1: Yeah. You might be looking at writing off the whole thing under one seventy-nine instead of one 68K
0: or some combination of the two.
1: Absolutely, which is why you get good accountants to play around with these things. But yes, some of these things are sunsetting. When they were done in 2017, they said, Mm -hmm. oh, it's going to sunset in 2025. Some gradually sunset and some just immediately boom. And it's up to Congress as to whether they're going to extend it or change it. Somebody had a good question over there. If if your amazing significant other is passive in all five business and you file jointly, shouldn't 50% be passive? So, if they have five businesses and you're filing married filing jointly, material participation is for their group, I believe. So, yeah. Yeah. Material participation counts both spouses. So, yeah, it's,
0: it's either going to be all passive or all non passive. So, I, I stole that one out of chat. Somebody's
1: going to be sending me an email going, I don't see that question. It's because I'm reading it behind the camera. Literally. Yes. <laughs> it's like over there. All right, let's do this. What is the best way to set up an LLC? For a partnership if you want to be certified as a veteran-owned small business
0: this is a case of the structure means less than all the rules that go along with being a vosb which means you got to be working in a full-time You're, the veteran has to be working in it full-time has to own at least 51 percent has to be drawn a reasonable salary has to be the highest paid employee has to be yes it has to be the highest. Executive. I forgot about
1: that one. Yeah, it has to be the
0: highest executive and highest paid employee. So let's say we form a corporation to be a VOSB. I have to be the president. I have to own at least fifty-one percent. I am a veteran, so this works for me.
1: In other words, I can't set up a business and say, "Hey Jeff, you be fifty-one percent. We're going to go get government contracts." And I'll pay I'm, you
0: ten thousand. You'll pay me ten thousand dollars a year while you make a hundred thousand. Yeah,
1: they don't let you do that. No, you know, Jeff has to actually be in control too because they don't just say fifty-one percent signing checks, in charge of contracts, in charge of employees, like they have to actually be the one running the place. <laughs>
0: it, it, it does say that you got to be running the joint.
1: Yeah. And if, and if you look at, I think SBA has, I remember that they have a, there's kind of a thing where you can ask questions and they'll tell you whether or not you qualify and they have all the, like it is probably 30 or 40 questions. If I remember right. It's been a bit since I actually dug into the certification because you know, they call it verified a uh, veteran-owned small business or mm-hmm. certified veteran-owned small business. And you're basically, again, 51% in control, highest paid. You're the top executive. It's not that I can just pay somebody a, a small amount and say, hey, you're a veteran. Come here and lend me your, your veteranism.
0: There is another classification called the DVOSB. Disabled. Disabled yeah. veteran-owned uh, small business. I have not looked into that, but I'm sure there's probably, you probably got to be 100% disabled or at least a certain percentage. disabled. Uh,
1: it's anything if you're certified disabled, I don't know the threshold as far as how much, I think right. they just say, are you a disabled veteran? If you're a disabled veteran and you've had permanent disability, then you're going to qualify. And then it's the same thing. You got to be in charge
0: of it. it both of them are a great marketing tool. They also have lender preferences that uh, you can get better rates with, with certain lenders.
1: And you get you get to bid on contracts that nobody else gets to bid yes. on. You get preferential treatment almost. All right, uh, hey, we have a couple of events coming up. It Looks like July thirtieth and August thirteenth. It is the real estate a- tax and asset protection workshop. There's my partner Clint Coons, smiling face. He does a great job in the mornings. Been partners with him for like twenty five years. Uh, we do a very good job. I'm going to toot our own horn. We do a very good job of breaking down the different types of entities. The tax ramifications of of proper structuring. I go over a section where I say like the top three things CPAs miss that we see over and over and over again, how you could take advantage of a bunch of the tax codes. Uh, Clint does a great job on, on showing how to use anonymity for your house, for your investments, how to get your name out of the public record. I always say, get your, you know, keep lawyers, Snoops and Uncle Sam out of your stuff, out of your stuff. Let's just make sure that that you know where your stuff is and nobody else can go find it unless you want them to. But personally, I don't want people knowing what I have. I don't want people digging around. So uh, really good workshop, if I do say so myself. There's lots and lots of five-star reviews. And we've been doing this for a long time. Jeff, what do you think of those?
0: Uh, I went to them when I first started here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, there's there's a lot of good information provided. Mm -hmm.
1: We're doing them in a day. Like you you literally, would do nine to four. Clint does the morning, I do the afternoon. Clint does a great job, and I do a pretty good job. So we'll make sure that we give you a a really good idea of the rules if you are an investor, if you're an investor. And especially make sure that instead of being subject to somebody else's opinion of how to do things, that we'll show you the different options you have so that you can choose.
0: And and you know one of the best reasons for attending that is it is a great balance of tax, tax, And asset protection, whereas you go to an attorney, you may just get the asset protection to side. You go to the CPA, you may just get the tax (laughs) They used to do ping pong.
1: When we first started, we were just being the lawyers and we would deal with the the accountants. And the accountants always like to send you, like, they would always confuse the hell out of somebody and send them on to the financial guy. who would then confuse them even more and then send Mm -hmm. them back to the lawyer. And the next thing you know, you're going, and you're just trying to like, would somebody tell me what to do? (laughs) Right. Uh, somebody says, it has made me feel more confident my investing future. Perfect. Renee, you are awesome. Martha says, you both do a great job. See, And Sherry says, you are the best, Mr. Toby, because Sherry's awesome. Hi, Sherry. How can I write off or expense, finishing expenses on my primary residence that will be purposed late this year as a furnished, short, or midterm rental property? So it's my primary house. I live in it. And at the end of the year, I'm going to make it into a, an Airbnb.
0: Here's my problem with this one is at the time I made the, uh, did the improvements and so forth, it was my primary residence. It wasn't a business property. Mm -hmm. So I think that goes into your basis, your costs for your primary residence. And then when you section off that portion, whatever it is, that's going to be your short term and midterm rental property, assuming that you're still living in part of the residence, then it... That portion would get part of that property for depreciation. What if
1: it was the whole property? I move out of my house and I make it into an Airbnb. Do I have to worry about the 14 days? Do I have to worry about any of that stuff?
0: No. Um, you only have to worry about uh, if it's some days or less, if you want to keep it in short term versus long term. No, I'm thinking about
1: if I personally use that property. For, You're
0: talking about the 14-day rule like comes with 280A or uh, the personal use. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, talking about, home.
1: I'm talking about, yeah, the, the, the vacation home, um, whether it is
0: an investment or not. So, no, if, if you have running it out completely and not using it for personal use at all, you don't have to worry about any of that.
1: Right, because it's from once it's available. Yep. So, once I make it available for use and I make it into a trader business, so... What Jeff was referring to about the seven days or less, if you rent a property in the average use. So you take the number of days that it was rented divided by the number of unique renters Mm -hmm. or rentals. So like the same renter could come back, but you're looking at it saying, how many unique rents rentals were there? So let's say that I had it, uh, I rented it for 90 days and I had 30 unique rentals. Like I rented it over and over and over again, multiple times per week. My average would be 90 divided by 30. So three days, seven days or less is considered an active trader business. It is not a a rental property anymore. So you are in the business almost like a hotel. It's Airbnb, BRBO. And what that does is it gives you the ability to take your depreciation and write it off much faster against your W-2 income. In other words, the passive activity loss rules where your passive losses can only offset passive income are no longer applicable. You could take your losses and they would be considered active ordinary losses or ordinary non-passive losses and would offset your W2 income or other income sources.
0: So let's go back to your 14-day question and say this is either a my primary residence that mm-hmm. I'm running out part of or it's a vacation home that I use 3 weeks out of the year. Mhm. So at that point, what that means is you can't generate a loss from personal use property that that goes exceeds. beyond the, exceeds the fourteen days.
1: Yeah, so I think that actually that would be counted. So like if I lived there for six months, made it into an Airbnb and met the rules, would that prevent me from being able to uh, write off my expenses? Uh, so you lived there losses? for six
0: months, you moved out and turned it into rental. I don't mm-hmm. think that would. I, I I think the way we've treated that in the past is you cut it off after the first six months. So the first six months it's a uh, primary residence, and, and
1: then once it becomes an investment property, the question is: Are you using part of that? Because it, it, here's the rule: if, yes. if, if it's more than ten percent, fourteen days, or more than ten percent, then you the, then you exclude those that portion in those days, and you only get a partial deduction for the depreciation. So if it's one third time use, personal use, including by family and things like that, two thirds business investment property, you would write off two thirds of the depreciation yep. and expenses, two third of the property taxes, things like that. So here, what Jeff is saying is, it was your primary residence. We don't count any of that. That's your primary residence. You treat it just like you sold it to a third party and you bought a new investment property, which is actually a trader business because mm-hmm. it's not an investment property when you Airbnb it. Now it's just part of the business. And we love that. So then what would they do with like their furnishings? Would they treat that as a startup expense? How would you end up, because there's still value in all those items or if they fix it up, they paint it, You know, all that sounds like they would get to write that off because it's a trader business.
0: You know, I really haven't ran into that. I I know exactly what you're saying. So I just leave all the furniture there.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, What if it reimbursed you the fair market value of that furniture?
0: It could do that. Um, and, and what you just said is really important. You, you, it's not your cost in the furniture. It's the current fair market value of the furniture. Yeah.
1: So, it, it, you know, or you say it's a startup expense. You contribute it and you figure out what, it, you know, how much you put in. And it's basically, it owes you the money. So like you take money away from the Airbnb as it's made and it pays it to you, but it's spreading it out over a longer period of time. The first 5000 you can write off in year one. Anything above that, you're you're amortizing over fifteen years.
0: Yeah, I think if if it's furniture rather than startup expense, I'm going to say it's an asset of the of the. I'm I
1: would contribute. treat it. That I would I would probably say I would. you don't want to sell it to it because you you'd end up paying tax on that. What I'd probably do is is be looking at it, and then again, we're spitballing here. More than likely, I'm mm-hmm. going to say reimburse me for the for the value of the furniture and just get the money and get the fair market value back to myself. Yep. Does, uh, since I have Elliot, Troy, Ian, Dana, Pio, and Dutch, do you guys have anything that you've dealt with on this situation? I'd be curious, since we have a whole bunch of accountants and tax attorneys and things like that. If you guys could put it in chat, that would be great. If anybody has experience and has done returns on this, I'd be curious. Just because I've never seen somebody personally, I've never seen them take all their, like, just rent a house out furnished. That was their primary home. Usually they're buying for, for an Airbnb, but let's say you you decided to make your house into an Airbnb. What would you do with the furniture? I'm just curious. So Dana, Elliot, Troy, Pio, Dutch, Ian, any of you guys, just throw it in chat. And if you don't know, yeah. say lovey. If you could take a look, because I'd love to get a little more. Maybe there's some answers out there. Somebody says one bought a storage unit, and put their personal items in it. that's well, not an Airbnb. Ian. <laughs> I'm going to give you the stink eye. What if we wanted to get money back for their stuff? Couldn't the owner lease the furniture to the LLC? Yeah, but then they have income, Renee. Just did the model myself. First rental is Thursday. Very good. I think it will be contributed fair market value, but finding that F, fair market value would be tough. Troy, I'm with you. I'm thinking too, is that you're contributing and you're getting reimbursed or you just have a basis in it, which means yeah. you can always get that money back tax-free too. All right, here we go. If I move my paid off condo to a trust, will the trust pay taxes on it? First off. What do you say?
0: Don't put your condo in, that, in the trust. Well, I'm thinking irrevocable trust. though.
1: So. Right. So how about this? Is it your home <laughs> or is it a rental? Because if it's a home, you paid off a condo, put it in a living <clears throat> trust. No problem with that. No, there is no tax. If I sell one year after owning it, then put it in trust before I sell it, question <laughs> mark.
0: I usually caution people about changing title right before trying to sell it. I, I think it causes mm-hmm. a lot of issues. One thing to keep in mind is the trust. The trust has the same tax brackets as individuals, I believe. However, they start much faster. You maximize the yeah, you uh, tax bracket, I think, at like $12,000.
1: $12,000, bucks. you are at the highest tax. Yeah. Yeah. You're just busting through. That's an irrevocable trust. I think they're talking about a living trust here or a land trust.
0: So if it's a living trust or land trust, neither, they're both considered disregarded entities neither pay taxes. And it doesn't cause you to have a tax. Right. Trust
1: is a grantor trust, meaning that the grantor, whoever put it together, yeah, mm-hmm. me, is the, is the includes it all the income or expenses on their return. So it
0: doesn't matter. So once I put my condo into my irrevocable trust, it belongs to the irrevocable trust.
1: It's a gift to that trust. Separate taxpayer under that circumstance. Although if I have a irrevocable trust, I could be an intentionally defective grantor yes. trust and still be ignored. So even that isn't etched in stone. So oh. let's just pretend this is a living trust because I think it's, they're talking about their condo that they live in. Mm-hmm. So I move if I move my paid off condo, so I live in a condo and I put it in trust, will the trust have to pay taxes on it? No. no, it's you. It's grantor trust. If I sell one year after owning it, then put it in trust before I sell. I have no idea what that means, but it doesn't do you any harm. It doesn't do any good from a tax standpoint. It's neutral. It's just ignored. All right, let's talk about this. Can you provide specifics around capturing a capital gain loss short-term for digital assets? Is it simply sell and repurchase? Is there a waiting period for which I can repurchase?
0: So it sounds like they're talking about loss harvesting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you have Bitcoin that you bought at 69,000 and it's currently at 23,000, I believe today, yeah, you can sell that and recognize a loss on there. Now, you ask about how long you have to wait. You don't.
1: Yep. On crypto, it's considered capital assets, but it's not considered a security. When you buy and sell securities, if you sell securities at a loss and you you have a basically a sixty day window before you sell it and after you sell it, it's called a loss sale wash rule uh, or the wash sale rule is what most people call it. Then you. If, if you buy back the security that you sold at a loss, you just add that to the basis. Mm-hmm. They don't let you take the loss. But with Bitcoin, with Ethereum, with all these cryptos, not the same rule. And the Build Back Better plan was trying to undo that, was trying to make the wash sale rule apply, but it has yet to pass.
0: I think the one thing I would do, because I don't want the IRS getting crazy on me, is I'd make sure that the one transaction, the sale transaction closed before I made the purchase transaction. Yeah. I don't want them to look at my transaction sheets and say, oh, well, all you did was sell something you bought 15 minutes earlier.
1: I don't know if I would even care. I think you could literally sell it, take the loss, buy it right back.
0: Yeah, there's numerous ways to report gain and losses. There's specific identification, first Mm -hmm. in, first out. There's another method, and I can't recall what it is, but it's kind of a hybrid method.
1: Well, you can do tax laws. Yeah. You could say that this is for this. Like, so, yeah. So it's just basically saying, let's say I was buying stocks and I had bought stocks over a 10 month period mm-hmm. and you're going to sell one of those lots. All of them are short term, but that one that's at 10 months, you only have a couple months before it goes long-term. So you might sell one of your most recent purchases and you can designate that tax lot and say, use this. And like, maybe you have a higher basis. So you don't have as much gain. Somebody says, does wash sale rule cause problems in an LLC as a partnership? Yep. Any securities, like anytime you sell securities at a loss, even even if it's an IRA, believe it or not, if uh, somebody says wash sale for 30 days, not 60 days, Edward, it's, it's 30 days prior to the sale and after. He's not wrong. <laughs> yeah. So it's actually 60 days. Sorry. Everybody thinks of it because they always say 30 days after, but some people buy the security. Mm-hmm. Back at an earlier time, and then sell the the earlier the ones that they had at a lower at a higher basis, and they sell it and try to capture a larger loss. So yeah, they look at it before and after. That's one of those big piles of poop you can step in, but you can check it out. You can, you could do you know do a little research on the IRC. So anyway, but I I do appreciate the comment. Let's do this. Now I get back checked a lot by the CPAs out there, and sometimes they're very very helpful. But yeah, most people know it is thirty days. And you don't count the day of the transaction. It's 30 days before and 30 days after. All right. That's always fun. So in other words, if you have Bitcoin that's down, sell it and buy it back. There we go. That's the punchline. And good one. I'm looking to invest in multifamily syndications. There will be quarterly returns and potentially a lump sum return when the property is sold in five years. Is there a way to transfer, reinvest the profits from the sale on another syndication without being taxed? Similar to a 1031 exchange on rental property.
0: Ooh, I came up with two ideas, and I'm not sure that one actually works for what you want. Uh, 1031 obviously works. Here's the problem with 1031. Everybody in the syndication has to agree to do the 1031 exchange. You could do a swap and drop.
1: You could do a... The entity selling has to be the entity buying. Mm-hmm. You could have a, an agreement amongst the partners that, hey, I'm going to buy you out, and then you fund it with the sale. Potentially you could do that, but um, it's really difficult. I've never seen anybody really do it because there's so many, usually in a syndication, there's like a lot of people and that's not what they want to deal with. They What they want to deal with is not finding a replacement property and trying to close within 180 days. What they're trying to do is ramp up the net income, get that cap rate jamming so that you get this big, huge chunk of value so you can sell it, and make a million dollars. And they're not too worried about your taxes. They pass it on.
0: And, and the reason that this happens, from what I've seen, is a lot of these syndications will have IRAs, retirement plans, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They get to that year five that you're talking about where you're going to get this big lump sum payout because you're selling at a huge profit. The IRA just wants the money. They're, like, they're gimme, not going to pay tax on it. They don't need a 1031.
1: Yeah, excuse. a lot of these people are real estate investors. And they're what they're doing is they're taking their other real estate investments. Like So, for example, it's year five. I might be buying on year five. I should probably be looking at other real estate, so I can accept, so I can create some loss to try mm-hmm. to offset. If you're a real estate professional, otherwise, not really going to help you. Uh, you're just going to have some capital gains, and you can defer capital gains. You still have the um, qualified. What is it?
0: Opportunity zone.
1: Yeah, qualified opportunity zones, the quas's, and you could defer it for at least a couple of years now, and and then exclude gain as long as you hold the property, uh, the, new, the new property, which can't just be a flat investment property. You have to improve its value by doubling the amount of the, um, of the improvement on it. But you could do that and defer the taxes for at least a couple of years. There's really nothing else. Like if you're in a, in a syndication, you're kind of at their mercy. Mm-hmm. If it was you individually, you might say, hey, I want to do an installment sale and take it over a long period of time so that you're not recognizing the tax all in one year. I have doctors, clients all the time that deal with this. They'll go and they'll buy a bunch of syndications and then I'm explaining how it's going to be taxed in year five. And then they go, why the hell did I buy them all in one year, right? You kind of want to stack them out uh, and then maybe do some tax reduction. Like, hey, maybe I'm buying an Airbnb, putting, you know, making sure I'm managing it, harvesting a big loss, offsetting my gain from the exiting one of my syndications. And then I just do that same thing every year. And I'm just, I'm just kind of, watching when my investments mature and every year that i have an, a maturity event i'm looking at something that might reduce that plus like a year like let's say this is you and you have the year that that this big capital gain is coming this is why sometimes you harvest losses even if you don't have to use them so like let's say jeff here has a bunch of bitcoin and he harvests this thousand dollar loss and he just carries it forward he has no capital gain now when capital gain comes along and you exit a multifamily syndication, and there's two hundred thousand dollars a gain, wipes it right out. So you can do that too. You know, so sometimes you're doing gain harvesting, sometimes you're doing loss harvesting. And somebody might say, but you get no tax benefit out of the loss. You didn't have any gains, carry it forward. We never know. Like if you're a syndicator or you're investing in syndications, I should say better. If you're doing that, then yeah, you should be looking at it. The other issue, and Asa, you, you you're pointing this out, this is why I would love to have accountants on there, is if you aren't able to use the losses, your losses, you don't lose those. So like, let's say I'm in a syndication and passive activity loss rules restrict my ability to use the losses. That loss still flows down to me and carries on my return. So when I liquidate it, I get to use that loss against the syndication, against the gain. So all of those things. Yeah. Hopefully your brain is still on. Hopefully it didn't just knock it out of your head. But again, it's 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 never like a super simple, easy answer. In those, is again, it's facts and circumstances. Jeff, yes, sir. should I put my college kid on my payroll for twenty-four to thirty thousand dollars a year rather than just pay their rent out of my
0: pocket? What do you think? Makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. With one caveat, big caveat: your son actually has to be doing something for your business worth twenty-four to thirty thousand dollars a year.
1: Yep. Your child has to actually do services for the 24 to 30,000, but that's a big benefit. If I was paying, so like, let's say Jeff was paying for my college mm-hmm. and I'm his kid and I make zero income. Jeff's big baller making big income, right? Yep. He's, he's he's 24% plus. And if you live in California, it's even worse. So Jeff is, let's say that Jeff is paying 30% because you have all sorts of, uh, so Social, you know, Social Security and Medicare and all these things that are that are part of it. If Jeff was to pay for, let's say it's 30,000 and Jeff's paying 30 percent, Jeff's going to have to make about forty three thousand dollars to have the thirty thousand dollars left over. In other words, after tax dollars of 30, Jeff had to make about 43. Now, let's say that I worked for Jeff's business. Now, Jeff doesn't pay tax on that. He's getting a deduction or the business is getting a deduction, assuming that it flows down mm-hmm. to Jeff, then Jeff's getting it. But let's just say it was a separate business, even a C-corp and I work for it. I still have to worry about uh, the employment taxes, but I'm going to get the benefit of that. I'm paying into social security. I'm going to get a, I'll have access to that. Like I'll get that money back when I retire, but that $30,000, I'm going to pay substantially less tax than Jeff is because I have a standard deduction right now $12,950. And then I'm going to be at 10%, maybe some at 12%. So my tax on this thing is going to be, instead of Jeff, who's paying about $13,000 in tax, I'll probably pay two or three. So I'm going to save about 10 grand, not a small amount of money. If it's if your kid's $10,000 a year, that's even better because they'll pay zero tax on it, right? And there is a way to avoid the uh, employment taxes, even depending on what type of business you are. If you're a partnership or a sole proprietor and it's your child, then you could pay them without even having to worry about the employment tax. But the whole idea is taking it from high income high Mm -hmm. tax rate and move it into lower tax rate but i do have to make sure i'm doing the work and i did the same thing with my daughter going to school she had to work i made her all through undergrad same thing and i made sure that i paid her through a business that i was the manager of this is the fun part if you want to still control those proceeds and make sure that they go to the place they're supposed to you can still be in charge of the llc even though they're the owner Somebody says, can I put my retired mother on payroll just like a college student? Uh, Jessica, actually you can, as long as they do something, you put them on your board and actually make them participate in, in board meetings and, and get the family together and make decisions. We talk a lot about legacy planning and I don't just give it lip service. There's clients that I have where they get their kids together with the parents and they talk about their investment portfolio or where they want to go in the next year and they have full-on meetings and they do that on a quarterly basis. They always have a big one during the year. That stuff, I think, is invaluable so that everybody kind of feels like they're part of it. And, uh, and also so that if something happens to you, you're not just giving a big portfolio to somebody cold who's never had any experience with it. You've kind of showed them how to do it.
0: Uh, We're a question about the parent. It takes a little more planning than paying the kid, especially if they're in that 62 to 67 or whatever their full retirement age is, because whatever you pay them could reduce their social security. Oh
1: yeah. You might make up to 80% of their social security taxable, but
0: yeah. Well, they reduce for every $2 I pay you above $18,000. It reduces your social security by a dollar.
1: Okay. So the actual social security. It actually reduces your
0: social security payments.
1: Ooh. All right. So we have to look at that. That's why you have smart guys like Jeff looking at it, making sure that that doesn't pop up. A lot of times what you're doing though, is you're just trying to be able to give them benefits. Yes. So mom might be getting, you know, Five grand. But what I'm really giving her is the health reimbursement plan.
0: And, and you know, if if I'm I'm, if I'm in that 37 percent bracket and my college age son, I'm paying enough that he can pay for his own college because we haven't really Mm -hmm. talked about that tuition credit. But if I'm in that high bracket, I ain't getting that credit. But he would. He would if he is paying his own college tuition.
1: Yep. Somebody says, uh, what would the minimum age for kids? Uh, And we have cases on the books at, at nine years old. They have to be able to do something. And the nine-year-old was a question of reasonable compensation. And they got screen actor guild rates for photography used in the marketing of the business. So yeah. Can I put my mom on payroll, payroll, even if she's a resident of Canada? Um, They have to be an employee. Potentially you could, it'd be, if she resides in Canada, I don't think so. I think that she would have to be in the United States for the period of time that she's working, but. We could dig into that a little bit for you. It's an interesting. All right. Somebody says, Did Toby say I can claim my retired mom and my taxes? If she's your dependent, you can. Mm-hmm. Even if she's on your board. Yeah, absolutely.
0: As long as you're providing more than half their support, mm-hmm. they don't even have to live with you.
1: No, yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of weird. So, we, again, see, smart accountant, dumb tax lawyer, smart accountant. Listen to the smart. We have three ch- ch- teenagers. The first one is in college, we give her $800 a month. We talk about business with her a lot. Youngers, they're 16 and 14, have different conversations, but it's still the same. Can all three be considered employees? Absolutely, but you have to have them do something. But tomorrow you just have them work. It could be running a broom. It could be, I suggest you do social media because the kids tend to be really smart on tech issues. Like I hear you're looking at YouTube, right? I can't edit a video. You know who's really good at editing video? My daughter is really good at editing video you know your kids could probably learn to do some of this stuff and then you say hey for you know whatever your organization is i saw reverend so maybe it's church or something like that or whatever it is you know it could be the supermarket it could be your rentals you say hey i want you to be uh, handling this component of it and if it's a high value item like like social media you could be paying people 3 400 bucks an hour so you just want to make it reasonable you look at what their experience level is but it allows you to get over the hurdle, of 15, 30, like right now we have people at in and out Burger making 20 bucks an hour. It's much easier to qualify them for a much larger amount. So if you say, hey, $2,000 or 1,000, you were talking about 800 bucks. Hey, 800 bucks a month, and this is what you're going to do. Very easy to qualify. Just make sure that they're kind of documenting it and making sure that they're doing the work. So talking about your business is great. Having them involved in decision-making and actually involved in the business is even better. At what age? was the youngest age? The, I just said, Jackie, the youngest age we have on the books for, uh, for court cases is nine. But I would say it has to do with their ability to conduct activity. So if they're 12, and they again, there's things that they can do, whether it be cleaning, whether it be folding, whether it be stuffing envelopes, whatever it is, get them involved in your business. If you like this type of information, by all means, you can see right there, we live stream this on YouTube. So if you don't want to do the Zoom thing, you could just go watch it on YouTube. We have a lot of folks that do that too. If you have questions the next two weeks, you just want to ask questions. You have a, something that's been bugging you that you've always wanted to ask of accountants, shoot it over. Tax Tuesday at Anderson Advisors. We're literally answering at this point. It's hundreds of questions a week. We just do it. I know that the accountants love to do it. No, no. I know that, it, it, you know, we ask a lot of our staff and we ask a lot of our people, but a lot of it has to do with doing this type of outreach. We believe in reaping and sowing. And so we try to give as much information back and be as transparent as humanly possible. Like this is the, you know, the, mm-hmm. here's the answer. Like right? We're not going to, we're not going to hide it. We're not going to make you do jump through a lot of hoops. If you ask a general question, we're just going to answer it. You get too specific and we're going to say, Hey, come on in because there's liability for us answering too. We're going to want to make sure we do it in writing, but Again, our programs are fairly economical. Again, to be a platinum member, it's $35 a month. It's, it's been that way for a long time. We're not going to move it anytime soon. And you get to ask questions. You can meet with the lawyers. You could have documents reviewed. You can ask questions of the accountants in writing. And there's never a cost. There's no hourly cost to it. So we make sure that we're getting you there. When is this meeting likely to be up on YouTube already ready to re-listen? It should be in the next two or three days. Yeah, it's always by the typically by the end of the week. All right, guys. Uh, Anything else, Jeff? No, I got nothing. All right. So first off, thank you to Ian, Troy, Dana, Pio, Dutch, Patty, Christos. I can't see everybody that's on there because my Zoom is being evil. That's what Patty told me. And even Ander. Ander, you get, like, the the tech is driving us crazy today. I know that's not you. You have to deal with it all the time. But everybody did a great job. But those are the ones who are answering the questions in chat like you – And the Q&A, like you have no idea. They answer hundreds of questions all the time. They're just going through and busting their humps. So they do a great job. So thank you guys. And until we see you again in two weeks, by all means, go look at some of the videos. And if you have any questions, tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast.